Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Jonah chapter 1 and the verse number 1, the Word of God says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Jonah has certainly intrigued Bible scholars down through the years. And the liberal scholar, or the skeptic, pours scorn upon the historicity of Jonah. They get to the point where a fish swallows a man, and they presume, well, this must be a fable or a myth. Those who are perhaps slightly more conservative will see it as some form of allegory or a parable. And they'll have this idea, well, it's an allegory, it's a parable uh, to show us something about God's love to the nations. It does show us that, but it shows that in terms of human history, in terms of real events. Regarding Jonah's historicity, we need to go no further than turn back to 2 Kings chapter 14. Can you turn back there now? Uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, we have the account of Jonah. And details are given regarding him in the reign of Jeroboam, often known as Jeroboam II. In 2 Kings 14, the verse number 23 uh, describes the 15th year of Amaziah, Jeroboam began to reign in Samaria. He's reigning in Israel, the northern kingdom. And then verse number 25, it says, He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. And so they've got a clear reference to the historicity, the identity of this man Jonah, the prophet, the son of Amittai. We'll come back to that later on, but uh, again, Jeroboam reigns somewhere around 793 B.C. through to the 750s B.C. Uh, and again, that would make Jonah, again, probably uh, ministering before that time, but uh, certainly in around the time of period Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, also in the southern kingdom. These uh, men living, uh, perhaps not completely contemporaneously, uh, but in that general period of time. Some thought, actually, that Jonah uh, perhaps overlapped with Elisha for a time. And you think of some of the dates, that is very, very possible. But be that as it may, not only do we understand the historicity of Jonah as an individual, we also know in the Bible the historicity of the event regarding the whale and the fish. Turn to Matthew chapter 12 now. And just over a short section from Jonah, Matthew chapter 12. And here we have the verse number 39, the Lord speaking to uh, the Pharisees. And he says in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the wheel's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And as the Lord Jesus is literally and physically 
in the grave for three days and three nights in that way of counting in Jewish thought. So Jonah also spent those times in the whale's belly as a type of Christ Jesus. One authority puts it this way, this is one reason to defend the historicity of Jonah against those who say the story of Jonah is allegorical or at best a legend to combat Jewish nationalism by showing the all-inclusive nature of divine love. That's the thought. It's allegory. It shows the all-inclusive nature of divine love. But this man continues, Since the resurrection of Christ was historically real, so was the experience of Jonah. To regard Jonah as legendary jeopardizes the gospel itself. And so we've got to come back to those principles of conservative reformed thought regarding the scripture. As you cannot deny the historicity of Adam, so you also cannot deny the historicity of Jonah. These are historical figures, and you begin to pull at the thread of that. You begin to, if you like, unravel the entire garment of biblical authority. We've got to leave these things alone. Do they pose some questions and difficulties? Of course they do. But God is not opposed to such things. We have the God of the supernatural, and we believe in a God who is able to do all of these things for his glory. But we should not doubt the fact that Jonah was a real man, and the events recorded in this book are indeed real events. Now certainly, it is a story that provokes interest and questions. I want to get to the very bottom line. Fairburn, in his work on Jonah, says this, Finally, we are taught here the salutary lesson that whenever and wherever God is pleased to manifest his grace and goodness, it is our part to acknowledge and rejoice in his manifestation. I'll read that again. That's a summary of what the book is all about. Well, it's this simple truth. The lesson that whenever God is pleased to manifest his grace, Wherever God is pleased to manifest his grace, it is our part to acknowledge and rejoice in its manifestation. Very simply, Jonah is a book all about God's grace. And it's a warning to us that we must be those who delight in God's grace to whomever God chooses to be gracious. That's Jonah's difficulty. He wrestles with this idea of God being gracious to the Ninevites. You see, as we come to this uh, book tonight, there are two foundational questions to ask. Who is Jonah? And who or where is Nineveh? What about Nineveh? Well, Jonah, we know, of course, to be a, a Jewish prophet. He knew the Lord, and he was able to discern the Lord's word. God speaks to him. Well, we're told in Hebrews 1 that uh, God in time past used these prophets to speak in diverse ways, various ways. We're not told directly how God spoke to Jonah, but he gets a word from God. And we know from 2 Kings 14 that he's a true prophet because the word that he brought came to pass. He's got a word from God. So turn back, please, to 2 Kings chapter 14 once more. Uh, this 2 Kings 14 does give us details regarding this man, Jonah, but it does so by reporting the word that he brought, the word that was fulfilled in the reign of Jeroboam II. Jonah's first task, at least the first recorded task in Scripture, was to give a word in Jeroboam II's time. 
Uh, I refer to Jeroboam the second. There's a Jeroboam the first, of course. He's the one that made Israel to sin. And you'll get that time and time again. That refrain comes in the story of the histories of the kings of Israel. Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin. Well, Jeroboam the second. He's another evil king in a line of evil kings. We've got there verse number uh, 23. He reigns, and then verse 24. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. This is an evil king. Now, there is a word that God gave to Jonah that was then fulfilled in the time of Jeroboam. Now, verse 26 describes how the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, that there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. So the Lord saw the condition of the people described in verse number 26. Now, that language is language that we are not familiar with. But it's drawn from a language in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where the Word of God says, The Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. What do those terms mean? None shut up or none left. Well, let's describe in the defense of the people. The shut up describes the garrison towns, those towns where there are people to defend. And so none left to defend. It's describing the defenselessness of the people in times of persecution. It's God's judgment upon the nation. And so verse 26 of 2 Kings 14 is describing a time when God judged the nation. And there are those scholars who say, well, this corresponds more likely with the time of Joash and the Syrian oppression in Joash's time than it does Jeroboam. And so that then dates Jonah, perhaps, as a prophet in Joash's reign, but as he brings a word from God, that word is then fulfilled in the reign of Jeroboam. And what happens? Well, in Jeroboam's reign, verse 25, there's a restoration of the coast. What's happening is they reclaim some of the land that they lost from the Syrians. There's a reclaiming of that. And so what's fascinating, and again, this is why I mention this right now. Jonah's message in his first, if you like, his first sermon, his first word from God, the message that he brings is a message of comfort to the faithful in times of faithlessness. It's a message of God's covenantal mercy. This is a word to an unbelieving nation. But there's a remnant, isn't there? We know that from Elijah's time and Elisha's time. And so Jonah comes as a messenger to bring blessing to God's people, to encourage them that God is still on the throne. Now, soon after this, they will fall captive finally into the Assyrians. And there'll be that final departure of the northern kingdom. But in Jonah's ministry, he's bringing words of comfort now, that is important. Jonah practically was given the knowledge of God in this first-hand fashion that God is a God of grace, a God abundant in loving kindness. Even though there were these kings who were doing what was right in their own eyes, wicked kings, evil kings, not departing from Jeroboam's sin, yet still God was faithful. God was merciful. God kept his covenantal promises. 
And so that's something regarding this identity of this man, Jonah, in his early ministry. He's the son of Amittai. We don't know much about that. He's from Gath Hefer. Again, that's part of the region of Zabulon in terms of the, uh, the, the division and the provision of God's uh, inheritance in the promised land. So that's Jonah. What about Nineveh? Well, again, back to Jonah uh, chapter 1, we're told in verse number 2 of the first chapter, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And there are two things we can say very quickly about this city. It is great and it is wicked. It is the chief city of the Assyrians, uh, again, that nation that will be used of God to overthrow the northern kingdom. They are indeed Israel's arch enemies. It's a great city. Again, there are details given to us over in chapter 4 and the verse number 12. We're told uh, about the numbers of people there. Chapter 4, sorry, 4, four verse 11, no 12, 4 verse 11. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? 120,000 children in Nineveh is a general thought of that number. And so those who have thought of this have given a number, perhaps about a million persons in this great city of Nineveh. We're told from various sources, the walls of the city were a hundred feet high. And they were so broad that three chariots, three wagons could go side by side along the top of their walls. There were 1,500 towers spaced along these walls. The towers were told about 200 feet high. This is indeed a great city. Over in Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, we're told that it was a city of three days' journey. Again, there are those who've thought of this and they give an idea that the circumference of the city was about 60 miles around. Again, they're using some of the terms that were used in that time. This is indeed a great city, fortified in a very remarkable fashion, large, heavily populated. It is a great city, but tragically, it is a wicked city. Chapter 1, verse 2, their wickedness has come up before me. A wicked city indeed. Now, the language of wickedness coming up before the Lord is used in Genesis chapter 18 regarding the cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so you get some idea that we're meant to have the sense of the parallel between Sodom and Gomorrah and the city of Nineveh. We're meant to see it in those wicked terms over in chapter 3 and the verse number 8. As Jonah is doing his messages, he says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. And so those who suggest what's happening in Nineveh is a city marked by great immorality and violent immorality. Violence towards those in the population and marked by tremendous cruelty. One author says this, Great towns abound in wealth and treasures, which sinful men soon make to minister to their lusts and appetites, to support their extravagance, vanity, and debauchery. The better the Lord is to them, the more the worse they grow. The more they have, the more they sin, gesturing like they wax fat and kick. When the land is full of treasures, it is full of idols also. 
Many drive faster to hell, the more prosperous they are. It's a very vivid description of this city of Nineveh, wicked indeed. Do we not see the very same in our own day and generation? Do we not see that the wickedness is propagated in this nation? Often it begins as centers in the large cities, the metropolitan areas, the places where there are universities, there's education, all manner of folly, riches, abundant, all manner of pleasures that men can trifle in. All these things happen, and these are metropolitan areas, and we see great wealth and great wickedness coming together. So we see here in the time of Jonah in the city of Nineveh. And so that's some of the background details that we should keep in mind when we enter into this study. But the book, I've said already, chiefly reveals to us God. And so as we look at these first two verses, just very briefly tonight, what do we learn about God from the start? We're told, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. I'll have four just very, very simple thoughts to run through with you tonight very quickly. First of all, God sees, God speaks, God sends, and God spares. So things we learn from God in these opening two verses. First of all, God sees. We're told in verse number two that this city Nineveh, their wickedness has come up before me. Now the idea, the language there, again, is like unto Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the accumulation of their wickedness is coming to heaven, and God is aware of all of their sins. It's not new. It's not the idea that Nineveh just suddenly began to sin against God, began to rebel against God all of a sudden. Rather, there's an accumulation, there's a continuation, there's a progressive nature to their wickedness. And God has not been blind to any of it. The eyes of the Lord, says the wise man, are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Wickedness has been continuing in God's sight in Nineveh. But that doesn't mean two things. The wickedness continuing does not mean that God doesn't see or that God must approve. Again, we sometimes have this idea that look how wicked the cities of our nation are. And yet it seems their wickedness just keeps on building and accumulating and growing time and time again, year upon year. There's a building up of their wickedness and we may have this idea, well, well, perhaps God doesn't see, he's not aware of this, or perhaps God approves. I don't believe you think that for a second here, but there are those again who have such thinking. For one, those in the cities have those presumptions. They imagine they can sin wickedly against God with a high hand, and there is no God to see or no God who will judge. Such is folly. This verse proves to us again that the wickedness continues. God is aware of that, and for various reasons permits that wickedness to continue until the time that he is appointed. Time for judgment or reformation. Now, yes, we can think of the long-suffering of God's. We know that God is patient and long-suffering. We know that God has his people who must be gathered in. That's part of the reason. We also know that God is pleased to allow men. He abandons men to harden their own hearts and their sin. That's the tragic side of this. We see a, a God of absolute justice who allows men to recklessly continue in their sin, doing their own pleasure. What an awful thing it is. And so this wickedness continuing does not mean that God doesn't see. It also does not mean there is no hope. 
The wickedness continues for many, many years. God's aware of it all. It's building up in his sight. He's conscious of it all. But we know the story of Nineveh. And when Jonah comes and preaches, the people are willing to put on that sackcloth and repent and cry unto God. And so just because wickedness accumulates, it does not mean there is no hope for repentance or renewal. That ought to strengthen your heart tonight. The story is not finished regarding the nation or the cities of this nation. The wickedness accumulates. It is not beyond the grace of God to pour out his mercy and bring about repentance and renewal. God sees. Secondly, we know that God speaks. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came unto John, the son of Amittai. He speaks. This is true, of course, of God generally. He's not like the idols. The idols have mouths, but they cannot speak. Rather, God, the one true and living God, is a God that communicates clearly his will and his ways. But it is the word of God that changes people and changes places. The word that first comes to Jonah, his plans were rapidly changed. And more of that later. But the word then comes from Jonah to the Ninevites. The word of God. And again, we know that God's word comes but we ought to think always about the grace of God in and speaking. The fact that God speaks is a manifestation of his grace. And sometimes we think that the words of warning are words of judgment. But God's words of warnings are words of grace. The gospel comes and warns us of the wrath of God to come. And we're encouraged to see the coming judgment of God. We're warned about that reality. God has not kept judgment secrets. Christ is going to come in vengeance, pouring his wrath upon all those that know not God and that obey not the gospel. That will not be a surprise. God has told us. And God spoke to some of you in those terms. And the warning came to your heart and you understood the warning was real and true. And so you fled from the wrath to come. And so what you see in that idea is that God's word of warning is gracious itself. God warns of the coming wrath of God. God's judgment is seen when there's a famine of hearing. When there is no word, then God is coming in judgment. When the word of God is taken from a people or a place, that is God's judgment. That's a fearful thing. When churches close and faithful preachers have to move away from an area, and there's a reality that area has rejected the gospel. God is judging that area with the removal of the word. But as the word of God continues to be preached, it's a sign of God's grace and God's favor. It is the word of God that changes things. That was true in the New Testament of the Thessalonians. They follow the Lord, having received the word. It is the word that turns that people around. I think of the individual still sitting under the word. And I think of God's grace. I think of the family or the church still hearing the word of the Lord. And I think of God's grace. We must pray to God in light of the determination of many to stay away from the word. Or neighbors or friends or families and they are determined to not hear the word of God and they are closing their ears from the grace of God's. 
God sees and God speaks and God sends, thirdly, sends. He sends a messenger. When God comes to show his mercy, he sends a messenger to communicate that mercy. Think of the one who was sent here, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Arise, go, I'm sending you. That was true of the Old Testament prophets. They were sent of God. True of John the Baptist, one sent of God. True of Christ himself, the great prophet, as one sent apostle of God. True of the gospel minister, how shall they preach except they be sent? God is pleased to send messengers, often unlikely men. God has intents on showing mercy to Nineveh, but he sends a man who has no heart for the message. A man who struggles with the idea that God would show mercy to the Ninevites. But God is pleased to send an unlikely imperfect man, treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency, the power may be of God and not of us. God gets all the glory. This messenger is so imperfect, so unprepared in many ways, and yet God is pleased to use him. You know, one of the wonderful things that we'll see in Jonah is that God is pleased to send him, and as he is sent, so God works in Jonah's heart, as well as in the Ninevites. Jonah is showing a picture of God's mercy in a way that he will never, ever forget. You know, it is God's gracious providence to send preachers and evangelists into areas to announce the gospel because God has determined to show mercy. But it's all of God's grace, not of the man. And so as we pray for missionaries and pray for our churches, pray for our ministers, remember they are imperfect men with a perfect message and with a perfect, powerful God who can turn people about for the glory of his name. And so as we pray for the messengers, we're really praying for the power of God to manifest through them for his glory. Now, this is a reminder that God is pleased to send. He simply says the words to Jonah, arise and go. You know, we are not given the right to quill with God. God has a sovereign authority over all of our lives. His word must hold absolute sway. He is the Lord God who alone has the right to say, go and we must go. Stay and we must stay. Speak and we must speak. Whatever the case may be, it is God who rules and reigns here. So God sees. God is pleased to speak and he sends because finally we know that God spares. Again, back over in chapter 4, we understand exactly why Jonah was reluctant. People ask the question, why did Jonah not go? Was he fearful? Was he timid? Was he rebellious? Well, he was certainly rebellious, but I'm not convinced for a second he was fearful or timid. We're told directly, verse number 2 of chapter 4, Therefore I fled before thee unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. He knew the heart of God was a God who is pleased to spare the ungodly when they turn from their sins. And that is, I believe, the message that we'll see as we work our way through this book. May God encourage our hearts in it. And above all, may we see the God of the Bible as our God today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. 
If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.